Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. We need to know the truth. In our country right now, at every level, we need to know the truth and we need to use evidence. Hi, I'm Karen Chenoweth. I'm from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a great education no matter what their background. My colleague Tanji Reed Marshall will be back next week. In this podcast, we talk with educators we know are thoughtful to hear how they are meeting the unprecedented challenge of educating students during the twin crises of a worldwide pandemic and a national reckoning over deeply entrenched racial injustice. We're hoping that they can help the field think about things they can do to educate all students. Until now, we have focused solely on elementary and secondary schools and districts to hear how they are coping with the pandemic schooling, and we'll continue to do that in future episodes, but we felt it was time to broaden the conversation a bit. You may have seen that one of the key researchers behind the new kind of mRNA vaccines is Kismekia Corbett, a 34-year-old African-American woman whose research efforts helped make possible the fast development of a highly effective vaccine. If you have seen or heard her interviewed, you might be forgiven for wondering, how on earth did someone that young get that smart? That's impossible to answer with any precision, but decades ago, our guest had a vision for how to develop cadres of young people who would be as smart and contribute to science in just the same way as Kismekia Corbett. And his vision has come to pass. Dr. Corbett is one of many scientists and other scholars who have come through the system that Dr. Freeman A. Hrabowski III has built. One of the through lines of this podcast is the role of leadership in education. If your focus is elementary and secondary education, I will excuse you for not knowing who Dr. Hrabowski is. But by the end of this conversation, I guarantee you will want to learn more. Dr. Herbowski is the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, one of Maryland's public universities, and the one that Dr. Corbett attended as an undergraduate. We're going to talk about UMBC, but first I have to declare my conflict of interest. I have long been an admirer of Dr. Herbowski's. When I was editor of Black Issues in Higher Education in the late 1990s, I edited what I think was the first national cover story about him, and I later wrote about him and his university for the Washington Post. He very kindly wrote blurbs for two of my books. He also spoke at my younger daughter's high school graduation, so I have known and admired him for many years. One thing you should know about him uh, before listening to this interview is that at the age of 12, he heard Martin Luther King Jr. call for young people to join the protests. He did and was part of what is now called the Children's Crusade. Um, he was arrested and spent five days in jail. And even as a child, he was admirable. But I come today not to admire, but to learn from him. 
Dr. Hrabowski initially came to UMBC as vice provost in 1988. Not long after that, Bob Embry of the Abel Foundation in Baltimore connected him with Baltimore philanthropist Robert Meyerhoff, a meeting that launched the Meyerhoff Scholars Program in the fall of 1989. Dr. Hrabowski, can you say what Mr. Meyerhoff wanted to do and how you conceived of what became of the Meyerhoff Program? Sure. I, I should start by saying I actually moved to UMBC in 1987. I was there early oh. 1987, but it's 1988 that's significant because that is when I met Robert Meyerhoff. And uh, Mr. Meyerhoff was very interested in understanding challenges that particularly black males were facing. At the same time, I had been talking with potential donors, such as Bob Embry at the Abel Foundation, about helping us with this challenge of underrepresentation of blacks in science in general, and the fact that our African-American students were not doing well in science and engineering areas. And so we had the chance to talk, Mr. Meyerhoff and I, and we were able to marry the two ideas of the underrepresentation of science with the, the challenge of black males not doing well academically and decided the first year would be a program to attract males, black males, who would major in science and who would have the goal of becoming PhDs in those areas, MD, PhDs, and some might become MDs. But the, the key was on PhDs because of the, the, the paucity of African-American PhDs in STEM areas in our country. So just let's just unpack that just a tiny bit, because I think a lot of people say, well, if African-American males are not doing well, how can we support them? How can we help them? But they don't think, let's make them PhDs. Like, let's raise that bar so high sure. that it's, that, you know, most white people would never even dream of, right? Sure, sure. And yet that was your approach. Your approach yeah. was, we're not asking enough. We need to ask more. Right. They'll rise to the challenge. Sure. You know, we're all products of our childhood experiences. And people who hear me talk, hear me talking about my parents and the aspirations that they had for me, and particularly my mother, who became an English teacher and who would quote different people, one of whom was Browning, who said, oh, that a man's reach should exceed his grasp of what's a heaven for it. It was all the idea, and she was talking about Zora Neale Hurston uh, and, and the, the notion of really reaching high of dreams. And it didn't seem to me enough to talk about helping young people, black males to simply survive, the, the idea was how could we help them to thrive, to excel, and to have that bold and hairy kind of goal that Jim Collins talked about. And it was so out of the, out of the even possibilities to think about many more black PhDs because people have just accepted the idea, most people won't get a PhD black if they're good in science. And if they are, the only thing they want to be is an MD because that's all they had seen, you see. And so, uh, we knew at UMBC, my colleagues and I, as we talked, that there was such a shortage of Blacks to go on the faculty that almost no professor of science um, in predominantly white universities would be Black. Or the percentage would be 1% at most. And we didn't have any really in science and engineering at UMBC. And we knew that it helped students to see people like themselves excelling in something if we want those students to excel. And it was all those ideas. And it was also Bob Meyerhoff, an MIT graduate, a, a developer, um, who, who said, Freeman, we want these kids to know that they can do anything. 
And he said, because the question I've always had is, if young black children had the same benefits that my children had, how far could they go? We believe they could do anything. So he had that belief. It was very inspiring to see a wonderful Jewish philanthropist who simply knew this was an issue. The other part you should appreciate is that when we said the first year would be black males because they were so far at the bottom academically and so many were in prison, um, we did get pushback from people in the general population. How dare you do something specifically for males? But it was black women who said, thank you for doing this simply because we know that we have to help both young men and women, but the men are falling behind. And we need some way, if we're gonna have healthy families, of having educated black men and women to be supportive of the notion of people connecting in the best possible ways. So you started this, the Meyerhoff program specifically to, to basically train a professoriate. To, to I mean, train, is that right? It's a very good question. To, to develop a cadre of researchers, some of whom would go into the professoriate. Gotcha. We appreciated even then the fact that, that there were many opportunities in the corporate world, in the foundation world, in federal agencies for people of color, African-Americans, um, who uh, had earned PhDs and who were interested in research. So there's a theme here of intellectual curiosity, of asking good questions. And we would assume that a number would go into the professoriate and a number would go into other jobs requiring strong backgrounds in science, including PhDs. That was the idea. And ultimately, we really did want to have men and women in the program. When I suggested to Bob Mauer, let's have men and women, he said, no, I want to focus first on these black males. He said, I, my wife is a graduate of Goucher, but at that time was all women. She said, we're doing some things to support women. And I'd want to do something to support these males because I, he said, the only thing I see on TV about a black male, if it's not basketball, is a black male in handcuffs. Why is that? What can we do to change that image? So he was very courageous. And I, I remember thinking when um, the former president, Barack Obama, had his special initiative for males of color, that it was so on point. And it followed what Bob Meyerhoff had said literally decades before. So you started at first for males, you expanded it later, a few years later to women. Yes, um, and the next then, year, the, the, actually the oh, second year. Oh, it was actually year, next year. Because we were looking for funds, for federal funds. And of course, for federal funds, you have to have people of both races. And so after that first year of, of talking about the issue of black males, and I'm really glad we did because we had a chance to, 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 to shed light on the challenges on issues involving prisons and drugs and, and other issues. And we learned so much about helping that population. It was perfectly appropriate then to move on to look at men and women. And we did starting the second year. And then a, a while later, and I, I wanna raise this because I, I think you solved a problem that very few people have solved. There was a suit against the University of Maryland for having a race specific Yes. Um, this was the College Park campus yes. um, uh, for having a race-specific scholarship, sure. and it got struck down, and you saw the writing on the wall for the Meyerhoff, and you did something, like, I, as I say, I think it's incredibly clever Thank you. that you were able to keep the focus on African-American uh, students, but still be legal. 
Can you explain what that was? Sure. We were very respectful of the Banneker program at College Park, and that program got a lot of of light shining on it and the the court case. And we wanted to do whatever we could to continue with our mission. Our mission was to increase the number of underrepresented groups in science and engineering. Uh, And uh, we had started with African-Americans, as you know, in the the Baltimore area. Uh, That's the largest minority group. Um, and interestingly enough, um, the, this, the attorney general for the state was very helpful in working with us, with our general counsel, to look at the criteria we could use that would be fair to all people. And so, obviously, excellence in science from high school and grades and test scores and experiences, uh, but also an, an interest, an interest in supporting underrepresented groups in science, engineering, medicine in those areas. And that would include people of color. It also includes women who can be underrepresented. It includes first-generation college students, for example. Uh, And with all that said, uh, we also look at what's happening in our region and the problems of Blacks. But you will find that there are many more candidates. While we have somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 candidates per year, uh, and they will be of all races, the fact that we talk about underrepresentation as an issue will mean you get large numbers of minorities and Latinos uh, and blacks, in addition to whites and, and um, uh, Asians, of course. You know, but uh, it has allowed us to have a diverse program which still has large numbers of African-Americans. Uh, they are probably uh, in the program right now, if there are about 300 students, about 300, about 60% would be African-American, about 60%. So you've, you've kept the focus where you want yes. it, but it is race neutral. Um, do you have white neutral. students? You have, you know, yeah. if you can yeah. demonstrate your interest in reducing the underrepresentation yes. in the yes. sciences, you're in. Yeah. Or, and I'll tell you what's great about that. The students learn, uh, just as we do at UMBC, you remember UMBC was founded at such a time that students of all races could come to us. It is still, it has always been predominantly white. It's probably now 50-50 if you, if you look at the domestic population. But the, the largest minority group on our campus is actually Asian. We are over 25% of Asian backgrounds, large numbers from the Carter, from Montgomery County, Howard County, but from other states, particularly between New York and Maryland. And, and we have students from around the world. We have, in fact, you'll appreciate this as we talk about diversity, that 60% of our new students have a parent who was born in another country, which surprises people. Wow. These are American kids in most cases, but they are either with somebody who was in the military and a military a veteran uh, and a person from another country, or it's somebody from the intelligence community, you see, or, or people who came here to go to grad school and they live in this corridor and they may work at NIH and, and then their kids come to us because it, it feels like the Plaza of Nations at the UN when you're walking around. It's a great feel. And what's different is that because a number of research campuses and um, highly selected places will have that international feel. But what's different is you will find African-Americans born in this country from the eastern shore of Maryland to D.C., to Baltimore, to New York, also among that international population and achieving and achieving. That's the point that when you see an African-American on campus or Latinx student on campus, you know, that's a high achieving student also. 
So, I mean, you have roughly 10,000 students at the university total. Undergraduate. 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 And another, uh, and then altogether 14,000 of whom between 10 and 11,000 are undergraduates and another 3,000 approximately are, are master's and PhD students. We also have another group of about 8,000 who are in our training company in Howard County. But for the traditional campus, it is that campus of about not quite 14,000. So it's it it has a little bit of an intimate feel for a for a major university. <laughs> oh, it, it it does that, and um, we we are we are more residential than ever. Uh, about half of the full time undergraduates live on campus. Others live in the region, even if they are from just from Montgomery County. Their parents will get townhouses that they rent, and they live in. And there's a bus service there, so it it is it is a medium size. It's an intimate setting. It is. Uh, it's a nerdy setting. We like that. It is a nerdy setting, meaning <laughs> that you come to UMBC because you really love ideas and you want to be in a place where people respect you for being very high achieving. I, I say something that some people don't like, but when we think about public universities in this country, we first think about so often about athletics. And we're very proud to have beaten UVA, by the way, two years ago. But it was it was it was a great win because the team was great. But it was it was wonderful that that night that the kids wanted to go back and study for exams. All right. They really did. They're your students. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. That's it. So the idea of being serious about their work, as well as the basketball or the fact that we have a a nationally ranked cybersecurity team, uh, great in hackathon, model United Nations. We do a lot of intellectual competitions. So I, I say that to say, um, when you come there for that intimate setting, what's most prestigious is that over 40% go immediately to grad or professional school. And so it has more of a feel of a more, an even more um, well-endowed school. school the, the private schools are known, when you think of Carnegie Mellon, you think about brain power. When people think about big publics, they think athletics. Yeah, it's a good state school, but they don't think of it as your first choice. Well, the good news about UMBC is it has become the first choice for many people, including faculty members of other universities who know it's a nurturing environment for undergraduates and supported not just in science and engineering, though. It's very important to say that, uh, that when you talk about the humanities and you talk about the arts, um, we just had our second row scholar in three years. Oh, congratulations. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... um, Many of these students are, yeah, they're in science, but they're also sometimes in the humanities and other areas. This new Rhodes Scholar has triple major in economics and math and statistics and will be studying transportation. He actually has done research at Harvard in the summer. A number of our students go to around the country and beyond for research. And he's a Maho, by the way, uh, from Atlanta. And um, what's really nice is that he's already focused his research on inequalities in transportation something folks in the DC, Baltimore, Washington, Carter would appreciate because he's gonna to go to Oxford first, then he'll go on after the master's, go to, back to Harvard with his faculty member researcher there, get his PhD in this economics area that's got a lot of quantitative uh, material to it. So I'm very proud of him. And there's the first one who's out of Howard County, another Malhoff, um, is uh, working on a PhD at Oxford right now in nuclear engineering and is very strong in the arts and humanities. And when she talked to students recently, she said, she, she talked about that. She said, of course we love the technical stuff, but it really will be your grounding in the arts and humanities that can help you put all of this in perspective and appreciate being around people from other cultures. So we, we are very proud of that solid liberal arts foundation for students, regardless of discipline. 
So, so you've kind of alluded to it a few times, but there's this sense, and what I was trying to get to was the Meyerhoff program in particular, which is a full yeah. ride program, uh, has about 300 students. So it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a subset of, of what you're talking about. But you had a really particular way of thinking about setting up systems of support for students. Yes. So, yes. I mean, you have to be pretty high achieving to be in the Meyerhoff program. Yes. yes. The standards are not quite as high for regular admission to UMBC. Right. 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 That's not to say you don't have standards, but you, sure. you know, sure. it, you've been conscious about giving students a second shot. If they could have screwed up, they could have, you know, but you're giving them a second shot because they read, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or, sure. or, or they have some intellectual curiosity. But you, are, you were very systematic in how you set up supports for students. Yes, yes. Can you talk about those supports? Sure. First of all, you know, I, I appreciate your remembering so much about the mile from when you wrote about us in the Washington Post years ago. Some things have changed. I have to tell you that. Um, we don't have the, the money that we had for a smaller number. And so we no longer give full rides. We, we give them about half the money. Uh, and then, um, unfortunately, families have to take out loans in some cases. Uh, in other cases, we give them support in the summer where they get paid internships and research and so they can help supplement. But it's nothing like the full ride from 15 years ago, for example. And we still have literally 2,000 wanting to be there and we only accept about 60. All right. And so that you start there. Secondly, we have always had a structured approach, which involves a number of factors. And it's summarized in my TED talk, which is uh, the four pillars of college success in science and engineering. It's high expectations building community. Uh, it takes researchers to produce researchers and strong evaluation. And the, the, everybody says high expectations, but here's the difference. It's not just about the high expectations of the students. It's high expectations of us as professionals, as faculty and staff. What is it we need to be doing? I often say as a mathematician, I can go to the board and solve a problem in differential equations and have people saying, wow, he must be really smart. And then I give the students in the class a test on that problem and nobody passes. And the question should be, did I really teach it? I presented it on the board, but if students don't grasp the concept, then I really have not taught it. And that, that's not something we do in STEM. We put it on the board. I had, I had faculty members, wonderful people in grad school, I always saw their back because they were writing on the board at the time. That's it. I never, and if you asked a question, you'd get a, what is it now? You know, it was not like, come with me with the question. So, so the culture of science is what we need to change, first of all. And that's what we understood. Um, and the, the fact is that we call the first year or two of science in America, weed out courses. Most people, and when I chair at the National Academies Committee on this, we saw two thirds of Americans of all races are somehow pushed out of science within the first year or two. They may get an A in the humanities course and a C or D in chemistry, and they change their majors. And people say, oh, it's because they didn't have the background or they weren't meant to do science. That's, that's just not true. These are often students who have near perfect scores on the SAT. These are students who have AP exams, four and five. And the more prestigious the university, socially prestigious, the greater the likelihood in many cases they will leave science in the first year or two. All the data will, will tell you that. Why am I saying that? Well, the MAL program was based on the idea that if we accept students in this discipline, we have every responsibility to make sure 
they succeed. And we say, I say to students, but we are working, we've taken that model and we use it with students in general at the university because we have large numbers of students, including students of color in science who are excelling. When I say 40% are going to grad school, that's across races, that's in a number of disciplines. And most important, um, it's separate from the Mauhoff. In the Mauhoff, you are talking about 85 to 90% going to grad school. Now, with that said, what I would tell you is this, the students in Mauhoff are high achievers. We will take into account sometimes if they were a little slower in getting started at the beginning, and as long as those top two years, 11th and 12th grade years are better, but they are students who could have gone to very socially prestigious places, including the Ivy sometimes. But we know what happens in so many institutions, the students don't succeed. And so uh, in science, they will go on. I, I, my line is kids start off in pre-med and many become great lawyers. And my lawyer friends laugh at that, but it's because if you can read and think and write well, you can get at least a B in an, on an essay test. But in quantitative areas, if I give you five problems and three you've seen before and two you've not seen before, you can literally bum out on that test because you're thinking, oh, my God, I haven't had this. So group work is one of the fundamental principles of the MAU program. When I talk about building community, they are taught not to think cutthroat and compete against each other, but to work effectively together as a group. And it makes all the difference in the world. And of course, there's quite a lot of research to support that yes. idea. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. But what what has always struck me um, is is how many correlates there are to K-12 education. I mean, yes. I, I would yes. say our primary audience for this podcast is K-12. It's not a yes. university audience. Sure, sure. And high expectations, collaborative working, yes. changing the culture of teaching yes. so that it's so that the idea of high expectations is not solely the kids have to do well for yes. me to give them a good grade, sure. but I need to help the kids do well yes. so that they can get a good grade. I mean, these yes. are all kind of core to this. all the schools that I've studied, yes. the high-performing, rapidly improving schools and districts that I've studied Yes. over the years. And yes. it just has always struck me how many correlates there are. And yet, I'm not sure K-12 quite gets it yet. Does, does, yes. Are, do you find well, you that universities accept, uh, kind of get this? Because <laughs> it really wasn't all that long yeah. ago that university right. presidents right. would would say, look to the right, look to the left, one of you won't be here next year. And they were proud of that. That yes. was what that was yep. what high expectations meant. You're reframing yes, that yes. to high expectations Very are. So. You're all going to get there. And not only that, but you're going to apply for PhD programs <laughs> yeah, or some it, kind of excellence. What's so great about what we've done with Mahoff, what we've done with Mahoff is we've replicated that on our campus across disciplines. And so we have the Linehan Audit Scholars and the Sherman Scholars Program for people who are gonna teach math and science in challenging schools and humanities program and a center for women in IT. So there's these groups all over campus, the Sunham Public Affairs Scholars. And all of these programs have now been replicated with the student body in different groups and communities. But also as we work with K through 12 in the Baltimore area, we have done a lot with Lakeland Elementary and some of the schools in that consortium. And, and we're using the same principles 
the Sherman scholars who are future math and science teachers who have a major, by the way, even when working in the middle school in math. That's very, very, very unusual. And they're learning how to support teachers and the teachers, I love the fact that the teachers are experimenting with different approaches, a strong principal who believes in innovation and the use of technology and the group work. And I, I enjoy getting into the schools. I really do. I think that any college president should be as interested in pre-K as he or she is in PhD programs, because there's this, this interdependence that we need across the continuum. And so I'll be in a third and fourth grade class and doing math word problems with kids. And... Um, it's the most fascinating thing because we, as we have worked with the schools and, and our, with our Sherman Center, all the way going back to pre-K, uh, we have these students, Sherman scholars and others, uh, supporting teachers. And so the, our students will have a number of students in a group, the teachers working with another group, and they are obviously building on each other's work. But to be in there and to watch as children get it or don't get it and to see how we're interacting with them and to see the excitement in the lower levels and see how that excitement begins to leave sometimes in the upper levels. But to see these teachers who are wonderful about finding ways of putting people into the work and, and appreciating the, the importance of relationships and of understanding the cultural challenges. And Lakeland is primarily a minority school, black and Latino, with a few white kids and, and, um, and the schools around them. And we have seen the results, the test score results. Because we do believe a problem when I talk about evaluation in the TED talk, it's that high expectations and the principal and others worked with us and the superintendent in making sure we were doing the right thing. One of the challenges that universities have is that we so often tend to think we have the answer as opposed to knowing we may have questions, but that we need to ask questions to understand the culture, to understand what teachers need how they're working with families and children. Uh, and then we need to just listen carefully and make sure we're not being judgmental based on our own limited backgrounds. And then we act with teachers and academic leaders in the schools. And it makes a big difference when, when the school sees the university as a thought partner, you see, as opposed to being condescending and thinking we know more about children, because we do not. Teachers are there every day. And they, they know the challenges, right? And so it has been very helpful to us, so much so that when I've given some national talks on math ed and working with teachers, um, some of the teachers in Lakeland have been my kitchen cabinet. They have helped me in framing my discussion and bringing in examples that will help other teachers understand. I know what I'm talking about because I'm talking with teachers and being in classrooms with children all the time. And there's nothing more rewarding than being in a fourth grade class and seeing a little girl uh, get the get the idea in the word problem, and she goes with her eyes. Oh, you know, I mean, and that's but that's true at every level. It see, it seems to me that what we're working to do in the schools in Baltimore City is similar to what we're working to do at the university. Not just for Miles scholars, they are significant because they they helped set a foundation. We had students doing well before, but they were the highest achievers, achievers, and they tended not to be minority. Now we've got students of all races doing much better, and we use analytics, I should tell you that. Uh, the use of data analysis, uh, of trends, of disaggregating the data, of having robust conversations about what's going well, who's doing well, where the problems are, how there can be variability among sections, for example, and heavy emphasis on professional development and support of faculty. We had hundreds and hundreds of faculty going through uh, work with the use of technology in this period, particularly 
in a way that I think will make us never the same. So, and the Malhoffs serve often as supplemental instructors in classrooms. So they're learning now of all races, how to think of themselves as one day teaching the class, how to teach the class, just as they are in labs and publishing papers. If you, the, the defining point about building researchers is to what extent are they being encouraged to, to be intellectually curious, to ask questions, and then to work on that work. And so the best news I can tell you is that we have large numbers of students publishing in referee journals with their faculty, and so much so that on, in the arts and humanities, we have two journals on campus right now, Bartleby and UMBC Review for the arts and humanities and the social sciences. So the notion of asking questions, documenting, doing research, writing across curriculum, all a part of uh, what we do at the university and also a part of the, of the kinds of scientists we're producing in addition to the others in other disciplines. Well, so, so I'm, now I'm just going to I didn't warn you that I was going to ask this, but you raised okay. it. You, you talked about evaluation. There's a lot of talk now about we shouldn't give kids the state test this year because it's just, you know, been a crazy year, sure. uh, which we should talk about in a minute. But um, uh, we shouldn't, you know, it's just been too crazy. We can't, we shouldn't give kids the state test. And my thought is, how are we going to know who's doing better than in in some area? You know, some yes. some yes. school is going to knock it out of the park in yeah. terms of teaching multiplication this year yeah, online. Yeah. 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 And how are we ever going to know that if we don't give some kind of standard evaluation? Right. And, you know, I, I would say this. Now, I, I agree. We need to know the truth. In our country right now, at every level, we need to know the truth and we need to use evidence. And we get that evidence through this testing. Now, in the same breath, for those who disagree with me, I would say this, but we should not hold it against children or teachers in circumstances that have been, if not impossible, almost impossible to have that quality of teaching and learning that we need. Because let's, let's be honest, um, even before we got into the to this situation with COVID, um, the test scores in urban areas and others for children of color were abysmally low. And it's not because we are immediately questioning the effectiveness of a teacher, it's that we've got to figure out that teaching and learning process uh, in the light of the challenges that teachers face and that children face coming from, from families. And so when I tell you that Lakeland is doing much better, we've gotten up to the state averages in math and reading, which is, which is huge for minority kids. And, but that's still talking about somewhere between 40 and 50 percent proficient. So you got over half the kids, even in a well-performing school doing, you, you see what I'm saying? Uh, and, and what I would all, and it depends on the grade level. That's also so. So even before we got into this, we know the scores are going to be low, but it does help to know how low, what the, what the hope is, what the challenge is. At the same time, I would say, this is the time for America to say, we know we did not serve our children well, particularly children who are not from well-educated families in well-heeled schools when we had people just do well because they're reading at home all the time. And so we need an extra effort to help those teachers and those children, whether it's through summer work, through evenings, through weekends, I mean, over the next two years to help our children catch up. They are well behind, far behind. I see that my wife moved 
uh, to our place in South Carolina to help my my grandson there, who's nine, and he's he's um, he's got he is he is a brilliant child. Every grandparent thinks his child is brilliant, of course, but but more than that, but he is an unruly child. He is he's got his challenges, you know, and and um, needs a lot of attention, a lot of structure. And as she watched him uh, working with that screen, and and if she hadn't been there sitting with him all the time he would know ways of getting around doing what the teacher said. I mean, this is, and we're in a privileged family, you know, so I know it's real. These challenges are real. And some people do better with technology than others. Uh, and the, the amount of support we've given teachers during this process. So, so my point is that, yes, testing, I always believe that testing helps us to have the evidence. We just have to know how we use that evidence, how we disaggregate the data, how we put in perspective the families and what they went through, and how we put in perspective what teachers have gone through. So teachers are not blamed for this when we know even in upper middle-class homes, uh, it's been a challenge for parents to help their kids stay on board. Now there are some children who will do it and do fine regardless, but so many children need a lot of structure in person and all that, we know that. At the university level, we were pleased to see 80% of our students saying they had a satisfactory experience with the technology, but there's 20% who did not, you see? And in some disciplines, it's more challenging than others. So I would agree with you, we need to know where our students are, and at the same time, to make it non-punitive. That, that's that's a, where I am personally. Um, yes. The... the um, the question is how you extract that information and what you use it for. Yes, exactly and, right. And you're framing it as we need to understand the conditions under which teaching and learning happen. That's right. That's right. And to have it as a prescription for determining what we need to do. Right. If the child still doesn't know how to multiply, if the child hadn't learned basic word skills, uh, word, word problem solving skills, for example, um, how do we come up with a prescription? to help that child make up that work because it would be foolish if we move to the next level, assuming everybody's just fine. Because that's a part of my challenge right now when I think about talking with school systems is that we just keep moving children along without figuring out how to give them that extra help. Now, the, the more enlightened systems are working on ways of continuing to build the skills. We have the same problem in at the university in STEM areas. And let me give you an example. We learned from the Maurer program almost 30 years ago, because the, the new Mauerhaus are often children of older Mauerhaus, I should tell you. They've turned down Ivies to come to us because we'll send them to an Ivy for the PhD, but our MD PhD, we're the number one producer of blacks who get the MD PhD. I'm very proud of that. Uh, number one. And you know what? STEM You're going to have to say how many graduates you have. I like that. You're just with, speaking with like an a MD PhD. Yeah, we, we actually have, we've graduated now about a thousand and we have about uh, more than 400 who are now either PhDs or MD PhDs. Others are still in grad school or they got a master's degree. Uh, and what, what's key is that when I'm talking about the MD PhD, the numbers are so small. This is a physician scientist. These are people who are going to be faculty at universities, uh, particularly in medical schools. So we now have the head of residency at um, MD Anderson in radiology is an MD PhD from UMBC who went to the University of Pennsylvania and now is tenured faculty there. We've got four black males, that's a young woman. We've got four black males who are uh, MD PhDs for three of them and one MD JD all on the faculty, two tenured already at Duke in medical school. The young man who wrote the book, Black Man in White Coat, 
one of the New York Times bestsellers, Ethel Meyer Hall, the leading young investigative neuroscientist in the world last year. From Montgomery County, by the way, uh, Dr. Kafri Zarasa, D-Z-I-R-A-S-A, got the top young investigative award for the Neuroscience Society of the world because he's invented a pacemaker for the brain to address depression and schizophrenia. It's just an amazing accomplishment. And he's, he's on it. He's really on it. And he has an endowed chair at Duke right now. Uh, and so let me put it in perspective. Since 2000, um, we have produced 42 African-Americans who have completed MD-PhDs, bachelor's from us, and then they went anywhere from Hopkins and Stanford to Harvard and other places. Uh, and now they are working in the field. But to put that in perspective, the number two institution is Harvard and they produce 17. And then we've got Howard and Xavier and Morehouse. Some of those are in the 10 to 12 over that same period. So we produce two to three to four times as many as anybody else over since over the past 20 years. And for PhDs, we, we are talking about hundreds and hundreds and MDs, hundreds and hundreds. The number one producer of STEM PhDs right now is Howard. Um, we are number two. Um, and, the, and, and I should tell you that their program, the Bison Scholars, is, is uh, actually uh, a replication of Meyerhoff. We're very proud of that. And my dear friend, the president of Wayne, of, of Howard, uh, Wayne Frederick, gives us credit for that. His provost is a UMBC graduate. The head of that program is a UMBC graduate. So we love having that relationship with them. We've also replicated Meyerhoff at Penn State and Chapel Hill to show it could be done at a large, predominantly white institution, uh, Howard Hughes, the Howard Hughes Medical Institutions, funded that replication over the past almost a decade now. And we've actually published papers together, including the president's in Science Magazine on the replication because it's worked really well. Uh, and we are right now replicating Meyerhoff at uh, Berkeley and San Diego with funding from the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation. So the best news about any program that works is can it be replicated? And quite frankly, people wanted to suggest, well, Mahov does so well because you have a black president. You know? And I said, no, anyone, regardless of race, who cares about students and who shows uh, that passion for helping them succeed can be successful. The presidents of all these other universities are white and they show great success because of the authenticity of their commitment to diversifying the STEM workforce. And, and you know, so I start. I started by talking about Kizmekia Corbett, who's kind of the yes. girl of you know yes. of uh, of vaccine research right this minute. But you also uh, can boast of the Surgeon General, and yes. right? Am I? Am Let I? Me, right? You know, and it's two two things. So um, I love calling her Dr. Corbett. She was my seventeen year old student, Kizmekia or Kizzy. But I love calling her Dr. Corbett because she has done such a masterful job. I loved it when the new vice president, um, when uh, Kamala Harris, uh, talked about superheroes and said, "Here, this is the other day, and she said, and one of those people was Dr. Corbett, a 34-year-old black woman. She's the first black woman to ever create a vaccine in this, in this world. It, is, it gives me goosebumps. And then when I think about little girls being able to see this young woman of color, um, girls of any race who can say, I want to be her. So she really is going to be a superhero. And as I've said to many people, we are determined she will not be a hidden figure, that in her lifetime, she needs to be known as someone 
who is uh, breaking down barriers, changing attitudes. And, and I want to give credit to both Dr. Fauci and Dr. Graham for supporting her. We need that kind of support from the scientific world to have more women and people of color, African-Americans who excel in science. We need them in medicine, too. But we really have we are we're talking about at the national agencies. Not one national agency has at least two percent of the scientists who are black. This is how the numbers are so terribly underrepresented at this point. But, and but what's so striking people. to me is yes. that 30 years ago, 40 years yeah. ago, you yeah. thought this up. You thought well, I can have a structure that will produce major researchers who will contribute to the nation. You know what? I wish I could say that I was that visionary. What Bob Meyerhoff and I thought was we will give them the best opportunity and we believe they su could succeed. But I will tell you, it never occurred to me that we would find a young black man from Mechanicsville, Maryland, who had never seen a black doctor, who would come to UMBC and major in biochemistry and graduate with a 3.8 plus and go to, to med school uh, in Indiana and then to get a postgrad degree at, at Berkeley in public health, become a faculty member at NAU and then become the Indiana commissioner and then become the Surgeon General. I mean, never occurred to me that we could produce create of a vaccine, the creator of, uh, my God, the idea of uh, a pacemaker for the brain at Duke, uh, the head of residency of MD Anderson in radiation oncology, a woman. These are, I mean, faculty members at Columbia and out in bioengineering at Stanford. I mean, it's uh, faculty members in my hometown in medicine at, in, at UAB in Birmingham, young black blacks. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. Um, there's no way we could have imagined they would be doing so well, these graduates, this soon. Because we're talking about people who are in their 30s, usually, maybe just at 41, 42. And so, it, but it does show what is possible when people believe in students. And this is the faculty. I give the credit to the faculty. First of all, wonderful vision of Bob Meyerhoff working with me on that, with our colleagues who said, we can do this. And um, that's why I say it takes scientists to produce scientists, just as it takes people in the arts or in the humanities to bring people into that work and then to evaluate what works and what does not work. Because a part of what we found in the earlier years was people were getting PhDs, they could speak well, so people were pulling them out of science immediately to be a representative of something else. And while we need some who are in other areas, we want them to do some bench science. We want them to create something. And so that when they become leaders in other areas, they can say, we've done this, you know? So it, it's all of that that's made the difference. The, the one point I would make that you would appreciate is, it's not just the sciences, it's in um, computer science. First black woman to get a PhD in computer science from University of Michigan, it's one of ours. Uh, Kyla McMullen, who's now faculty at University of Florida. And we've got, you know, the first black to get a PhD in computer science from Purdue is now in Silicon Valley doing work. And I can go on and on. So. No, we're seeing, we've now had 30 years, we've got a thousand graduates, and um, it's, the great story is students who, who've gotten a master's degree in a technical area will look at me with this look of apology, doc, I haven't finished a PhD yet. It's great, you know, and I can't say I'm so proud of you so much because we keep pushing PhD, which we should, but we are proud of them at whatever level because they are making a difference. That's the point. Well, and, and this idea of really high standards, rigorous work, 
Yes. But a lot of support, a lot of encouragement. That's it. Um, I know that there are students at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, who don't really understand that most university presidents don't ask them about their calculus test, right? <laughs> you wander the campus. How'd you do? How'd you do on that calculus test, right? Well, you know, but I think it's the zest for learning. There's this 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 zest for learning that we as leaders need to have, whether we are teaching in the fifth grade or working with students at the grad level. Uh, everybody on my campus knows I'm studying French every day, j'étudie le français. And uh, many of my students are first, uh, they speak French as a first language, so they love talking with, with me. Mais étudions moi, nous parlons le français toujours, toujours. And I'm studying French philosophers, uh, Monsieur uh, Proust, uh, Monsieur uh, Victor Hugo, Mademoiselle Simone Beauvoir, and my students are so much better than I am. And they love the fact that I'm comfortable with their knowing more, but I say the same thing about languages as I say about science, as I say about music, that you, you lay a foundation, you build on that foundation, and you bring that, that zest for learning to it, and you never say, I cannot do it. We in this country will say, oh, I'm not good in math, or somebody else will say, I'm not good in languages. Uh, and it's about attitude. This is what the word we use at UMBC, not just for my hall, but in general, is grit, grit that it takes that willingness to keep pushing and keep trying and to know that le joie venait toujours après la peine. It means the joy comes after the struggle. Now, my students would say, Doc, why didn't you just say no pain, no gain? And I say, yeah, but my way sounds better. The French, who doesn't love the French? <laughs> the humor, the zest for learning, and that's what you see among students and faculty, that we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously that we have to build relationships. You saw that at my home when you came and saw the Mile House. Some are studying, some are playing the piano, some are singing a gospel song. It's that combining of the, the studying and the intellectual endeavor with the holistic person. You know, that's a part of it. It's not just that we care about them uh, as, as future scientists. We're talking about caring about them as future people, leaders, citizens who are engaged deep in the knowledge of the science, of course but also understanding the broader world. So I can't talk with, with you without talking about what's going on in our country. We're yes. taping this one day before Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be sworn in as president and vice president of the United yes. States. Yes. And only a couple of weeks ago, we saw an insurrection at our Capitol by mobs yes. determined to upend democracy. Can I, I, I'm just curious, what are you thinking about the future of our country. Sure, sure. Um, uh, if, if this may sound a bit trite, but a tale of two countries. Um, the, on the one hand, some of my friends and I have been thinking about the fact that that uh, my friends at the president of Spelman um, is very proud that they produced Stacey Adams. Stacey my Abrams. Friend, I'm sorry, Abrams, excuse me, um, that, and that uh, David Thomas, President Morehouse, is so proud that Stacy's work led to Senator Runnock, Warnock, to Raphael, um, that Howard, in your city, produced Kamala Harris. I like saying my alma mater, Hampton, produced the new president, Black, of MSNBC. Very proud of that, right? And that my campus at UNBC produced the first black woman to create a vaccine. Now, what am I saying when talking about all of the social justice issues? We see African-Americans and other people of color moving into positions. What's at the heart of that is education, is education. 
None of them would be in those positions today if it were not for education. We start there, okay? And different types of institutions from the HBCUs to mine, which is not an HBCU, but that we are producing a cadre of leaders at the same time in education that we see so many children who still need support in learning to read. That what we see when we see a Stacey Abrams is a well-read woman, okay? That we want every little girl, little boy, in race to learn how to read well. As a mathematician, I'm saying, show me the reading skills and I can teach her to solve word problems. Just reading is the essence of thinking, reading and writing. The better you think, the better you can write, the more clearly, right? Now, so that, all of that's important about this tale of two cups. So we've got all of that going on. And then we have the fact that people of all races um, did come together to, to elect a president who believes in children and education and listening to the science and expertise and all those things, which are so important. And he's showing it already in many ways of elevating the role of science in America. Um, and yet half of America seemed not to agree through their voting with that point of view. And so what I see is an opportunity for those of us in education to be even more proactive in teaching our citizens, people in general, how to think critically, how to value evidence and truth, how to remove the emotions and look at the factors, look at the positions and to find common ground when possible, but to always shoot an error in that which is a lie or false. That right now, we have too many people who are believing lies, who don't believe that the election was fair. And there's a lot of emotion involved in that. And the only way we begin to change attitudes is to lower the temperature and begin reaching out to people on different sides. And, and also looking at ways that we can do more in schools, but also in colleges and universities. As I, I have the chance to work with new presidents in a special program for new presidents at Harvard every year. And I've said for years, if we look at Congress and everybody wants to criticize Congress, but they're all our graduates. You know, and while many we may be proud of, I mean, there's no doubt, we've got a challenge. So we, and so what I'm always thinking as students come across the stage at UMBC at commencement is, has this person gotten to know people very different from herself or himself? Because one of our challenges in universities is people stick with people like themselves. And one of the things we focus on as a very diverse place is getting people beyond their comfort zones. We need the opportunity to get people beyond their comfort zones well before they become leaders. So they can dispel some of the myths about other groups on any side, so they can learn to appreciate culture and one's own culture, of course, but so they can know we can only make it as a society if we can connect with people different from ourselves and have meaningful conversations. And that's this tale of two countries. And then even within the, you know, so when I, and I, when people think about what would Dr. King have been saying during this period, I'm saying, my God, I keep thinking about my graduates, he'd be smiling. It never, it never occurred to him that, some, that a black woman could create a vaccine. I can't get away from that. I just goosebumps. Uh, at the same time, it hadn't occurred that a black woman would become vice president of the United States. It's wonderful. And yet so many children who couldn't read when Dr. King was alive now have descendants who cannot read. That's the reality of it. If you have a reading mother, 
you probably will learn to read. I was blessed to have a, a mother who read and who was constantly focusing on my reading skills, my cousins and the neighborhood about reading. And, and I'm just saying, so this, this is where we are today in finding the common ground in focusing on education and thinking skills and finding creative ways of making sure whatever we come to believe is the truth. So John Lewis in his last essay uh, said, and I think I've got this right, democracy is not a place, it's an act. And it seems to me that that's what you're talking about. You're talking about the act of democracy and building democracy from, from a very small place but that's exactly where it has to be built. And, and what's always struck me about you is your generosity of spirit because you were firehosed as a child by people who, it seems to me, uh, gave birth to or you know, are the forebears of some of those insurrectionists at the Capitol mob? You know, I, I will tell you, and I was, I, somehow I was blessed while in the midst of fire hose and everything, not to get it on me, but I was thrown in jail for five days. And, and after that, after the police commissioner had spat on me as he threw me into the, the, the police wagon, um, I hated him. He was so awful to me. And, and for years, as I, I was 12 then in that horrible week in jail. And my mother always was bothered that I hated him. And when I went to college fairly early and my mother called me to tell me that Bull Connor had died, the police commissioner, and she was crying. And I said, mom, why would you cry for the man who treated me like that? And she said, after pausing, Freeman, because he was somebody's child. And I'm so sorry his mother didn't teach him to love people different from himself. And before I knew it, I was crying too. <laughs> your mama, only your mama can mess you up as we say in the South. I was crying, so why would you do me like that? But it was a crying, tears of catharsis. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, all that hatred just left, just left. And I understood what my parents had said to me so many times. You can hate what the person does, but don't hate the person because if you hate the person, it eats on the inside of you. Now, there's a message from the 60s there for all of us right now that we have to get away from the hatred. We are bothered by what has been done in our country. It was wrong. We do have to hold people accountable, but that's a few hundred people or whatever. Many more people believed in what they were doing because they have believed what has been told to them, quite frankly. And, and I am saying that we, who are fortunate to be educated or not have to find a way to do what I know the president is saying to work towards healing. But healing only comes when there's true understanding. And it's going to take time. But I do think we in education have a chance to play a role in determining approaches that will open the minds of all of us not just of one side that we consider unenlightened. No, of all of us, because we can all be better at this. We can tend to be, when we're educated and enlightened, a little too cocky about knowing we're right. There's a kind of humility 
that we need. This is what my mother was having when she was crying. It was the humility to know there are two sides. Even if he was wrong and treated me as a child wrong, there's a reason he did it. And it, it, I've often thought about that, that he never had a mother to tell him this is wrong, that you don't hate children, black children, because they're black, or you don't think they're inferior. And that's, that's, that's a, a profound lesson for my mother, for all of us. It will take me a while to reach the wisdom of your mother, I, I have to say. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Listen, I am not, wait a minute, I am not there, but she is in my ear. <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever get there. You know, but I will tell you on my campus, um, I work for, I pray and work for humility because I have my campus, UMBC, like the state of Maryland, we're all a microcosm of America. So you have people with all kinds of views. And you have young people coming from families with all kinds of views. And in so many ways, these are people with good hearts who may be, from my perspective, misguided. From my perspective, you get my point. But what do you do? Are you going to just push them aside? No. I want every student at UMBC to know we love them. We will be as supportive as possible. We will work to make sure we're all seeking the truth. We will have the hard conversations whether it's about how we treat people, about structural racism, about any income inequality, but we also have to allow people to speak what they believe to be the truth. We cannot just shut up the conversation. People need to believe, to say whatever they really think because the unexamined life is not worth living. We've gotta be able to have each person examining his or her values and perspective and background as we try to bring that light to all of us. And we have a way to go. Let's think about it that way. <laughs> I do think you exemplify the idea of democracy as an act. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Education Trust. I'll include some links in the show notes to, so that you can find out more about Dr. Herbowski, including books he has authored and talks he has given. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.